Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois, joined by Sean Dagenhart. Oh, bother. And John Redling Schaefer. Oh, I, my apologies for bothering you. <laughs> well, we hope you're not bothered by us. Uh, follow us on social media. You can also email us at podcast at the Wherever you're listening to us, please rate and review so more people find the show. We like to start things off with our Disney views, and we're very excited to, no. share, to throw this over to Sean. Well, there was a cast member that got quite the surprise uh, walking through the park early one morning before park opened. Um, found a visitor that did not uh, scan his magic band, or her magic band, I guess it was. And then finally, nobody knew why Frontierland, Adventureland, and Liberty Square had not opened with the rest of the park. And then soon rumors started swirling, and then we discovered what the truth was. A bear had wandered into Magic Kingdom. And you don't mean Winnie the Pooh? Not Winnie the Pooh, not Baloo. You mean a real bear? A real bear. Oh. A black bear. They live in the swamp? Yeah. Guess so. Apparently, uh, she was trying to get some nourishment as these bears are getting ready for their hibernation. She was looking for some food and wandered into the caves in Tom Sawyer Island and Ooh, discovered in a tree. In a tree? In a tree. Wow. Uh, so Can you, you think a bear claims the DVC or uh, discount when they're trying to buy merch? How does this work? I mean, what does that cast member think? Like, boy, those new audio animatronics are looking great. I'm just grateful that a guest didn't stumble onto it and think, what's this new character meet and greet or yeah. stand under the tree for too long? Smile. <laughs> Once. Yeah, in all seriousness, we're happy that nobody was hurt, including the bear. The uh, According to the <laughs> the Florida Fish for me. <laughs> and Wildlife Con Conservation Commission, it was captured. But it was just kind of, it was funny to watch this thing unfold. And like I said, thankfully, everybody was fine. Um, but... Um, the memes that came out. Yeah. The pictures Fantastic. are hilarious. Yeah. Fantastic. My favorite was the one <laughs> with the bear on the front of Tron. Tron. I Look think like, with Josh tomorrow. Was, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like having a blast. Yeah. And in the Doom Buggy and photo op with Mickey at Town Square Theater. Yeah, that was good. I think and bears can enjoy the day just looking as much for as casting else. for the new uh, Country Bear show. I have to bring up the joke that I always say that my family loves to hear 15 or 16 times a day whenever we're walking around the parks. Do you and know we this see, for sure, or are you just guessing? I'm, I'm guessing. Okay. I'm guessing. They look at me with total ad admiration and love. Admonition, admiration, <laughs> get the word right. <laughs> and, but when whenever we see real wildlife, uh, a squirrel run by or geese, I always say the same thing. They look so real. So I can't imagine... <laughs> So what I'm hearing is your tree. family would love for you to go up close to the bear and <laughs> no. say, oh, so real. That's what I'm hearing. He's more ferocious than the Chicago bears are this year so far. So <laughs> I would stay away. Bear down. Yeah. We recently had the opportunity to speak with Margaret Carey, and you'll hear that interview in a moment. Unfortunately, John couldn't be there, but uh, she was de a delight, John, and I think you'll enjoy hearing the interview. I look forward to it. Well, we are thrilled to have a very special guest here on the Hyperion Hub. Um, if you ever wondered what Peter Pan, The Andy Griffith Show, and Little Rascals had in common, 
Your answer is our special guest tonight. We are thrilled to have with us the live-action model for Tinkerbell, Margaret Carey. Margaret, welcome to the Hyperion Hub. Oh, I thank you very, very much, Sean. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to answer questions because if anyone can talk in the business, I can talk. Okay? <laughs> And you have been around a lot of that business. Um, tell us yes, how you got your I start in, in show business. Well, it was 90 years ago. I started when I was four years old. Hmm. Can you imagine? I was born in 1929, and I caused the Depression. <laughs> oh, you laugh, but everything went right downhill from there. <laughs> and, and I was adopted by two people who were old enough to be my grandparents, uh, lovely, interesting, annoying people. And I was the only child, and they took one look at me and found out that I could make $6.50 a day working in movies. And I was as cute as Shirley Temple, they thought. So uh, I got on central casting list and at the same time started in training for tap dancing and uh, voiceover and all kinds of things. And the first job I got was at Warner Brothers, and which is now uh, celebrating its 100th birthday, by the way. Mm -hmm. And, and the uh, picture was uh, the uh, Shakespeare um, Summer Night's Dream. I left out a word. Midsummer Night's Dream. Midsummer. Well, 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 well. <clears throat> oh, look, I'm 94, so I can get by with this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so anyway, that's where I met Mickey Rooney. Hmm. He played Puck in that. And I got to see Mickey Rooney many, many times when I worked at MGM. And I played a fairy in Midsummer Night's Dream, which seems appropriate. And from there, because I could tap dance, etc., cetera, uh, I became one of the blurs in the little rascals and that's what we sort of called ourselves later on because we would be a blur as we went by the camera mm -hmm. to go and sit down and smile or to stand up and cheer or whatever we were supposed to do and the later the later uh, little rascals when mgm bought the whole kit and caboodle of the production including the director uh, gordon douglas moved to mgm they invited me to come to MGM, and I was making $12 a day then, hmm. and I would tap dance. And so uh, I, I've had the joy of watching these young actors, as, and I'm a little kid, and I'm just astounded at how good they are. i just astounded, and, and I knew I could never be that good. I just knew that. I mean, they were that good. Hmm. <laughs> they hit their marks. They had the lines. They were they were just every everything was great, <clears throat> and uh, so from there uh, I went and did oh several show, uh, movies at MGM, including the uh, uh, um, Garson movies and then Elizabeth Taylor's uh, National, and then they saw I was just about the right size, so I got to double her in several scenes. Uh, so, you know, it's very expensive to have children on a, a movie mm -hmm. because we could only work um, three hours and then not all of the three hours. Well, you know, it's expensive to have children in a movie. 
So uh, we could only work three, three of the, uh, one hour was for lunch. And the rest of the time we had to be with our teacher. So if they could get somebody who could double a, a star, a child star, well, that, that could double the amount of time before the camera. Hmm. So I was working th that show, which is where they were starting to build Elizabeth into this gigantic star. You know that that, that movie, which is quite famous, uh, starred Mickey Rooney. Did you know that? Hmm. I mean, I didn't. Mm -mm. I saw some of the, the posters that they had for Mickey Rooney and Elizabeth Taylor. And I went on to do uh, several, I went under contract to um, MGM for just a little while. And then I was over to, uh, I worked at Paramount. But an interesting thing happened. I discovered television. And I fell in love with television. Uh, Sean, John, do you know how, how miserable and long it takes to make a movie? Neither one of us have worked in the business. Think of this. You get there at 8.30 in the morning, right? You've had breakfast and you've gotten in your uh, outfits. <clears throat> you go into this cold soundstage, huge soundstage. It's only lighted up in one portion where they're going to make the, the shots. And then you go to work with the uh, with your teacher and you uh, you have to almost whisper all the time because you you knew when the bell rang which was awful it went through your head um that they were going to uh, try for a shot and so you had to whisper because you might interrupt it and then you waited for the other bell to ring that said that you could oh and then you could talk just a little bit that would be better and then they would come and get you to for your part in a scene and which you had spent the night before working with your mother to learn all the lines. And you went out and you kept thinking, oh, oh, please let me remember all the lines. Oh, please. And you walk up and here all the actors had been going over the scene. And the director knew exactly what he wanted. And so you could hold it up. You could make the mistakes. And it, it, was, it was a little defeating. It really, really was. Then back to the cold school with wonderful teachers. Those teachers were just the best. While I was making these movies, there was a thing called the USO for World War II. So I was running around all over California. I was underage. I wasn't supposed to be doing these things. But they were wonderful watching out for me. And somehow in there, I found out about television. And I thought, this sounds great. So uh, I uh, was tap dancing at a USO in Hollywood. And uh, I, I could do all these wild spins. I was as good as, as uh, all, any of them, except for, well, a couple, let's say that one. But I was good. <laughs> and we're going out. My mother had brought me because she thought, Hollywood canteen, there would be producers and directors and movie stars there, and they would make me into a star when they saw what I could do with tap dancing. Well, they didn't that day, she thought. So we're walking out, and this man stopped us and said, um, Peggy, because that's what I was called then, Peggy Lynch. And 
and he said um, to to my mother, and he said, "You're she's wonderful at tap dancing," and uh, I was wondering if we could get her to come over and do a a television show over at Paramount. Well, the minute you said Paramount, my mother said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> there was no hesitancy. And so, uh, and he told us what, where to go. And there were none of the rules of how much time you could use anybody because the, the stations only stay W6XAXYZ. No, W6XYZ, yes, was the station that turned into KMPC. Um, KTTV was another one, and I went over, and he said, one of the things that I like watching you tap dance here was the fact that you could do it in such a small area, because, you know, we can't move those big cameras around, and if you could tap dance in that little area, we would love to have you come on the show. Well, the most interesting thing to me was that... (laughs) You did it, and nobody says, let's do a, another take. You've done it. That was it. So much faster and uh, pacing, and, and it's not an all-day uh, take, right? So you're, you're getting through that schedule a little bit quicker, a lot quicker. Oh, yes. Oh, my, yes. And so although I was working at RKO, I was working at, at MGM, I was working at all of them, I, I really didn't like it. I, I sort of got into television, and I was given the hosting of a show at Channel 13. And it was so early that my co-host, who know, knew a little bit about television, young man, he had to show the cameraman how to use the camera. Hmm. That, that's, that's how early it was. And we did a show called Teleteen Reporter. And uh, it was a show that you um, went out to the high schools and you caught talented young people and you brought them on board and you showed them off in your show. Sort of like um, uh, America Has Talent, Mm -hmm. only it was this little, we were seven inch uh, screens at that time and you walked around with the antenna so you did away with the snow, but it was delightful. And uh, so I, I really became bigger in, in TV at that moment until I got a call <clears throat> to go over to ABC and do a big show, hmm. which I loved. And my age, and from that, I became a dance assistant dance director at Fox on a big movie. Got a call from my agent and said, could you get off the sh- uh, work tomorrow? And I said, well, I'd rather not. And she said, yes, but they're looking for somebody who could play a three-and-a-half-inch fairy who doesn't talk. Hmm. And I said, well, you know, that, that sounds great. But she said, it's Disney. I said, it's Disney. I'll be there at <laughs> 6 a.m. in the morning. So had you grown up it's, watching so that's all of... a little bit of, of the background of where I come from. So did you grow up watching, you know, the Mickey Mouse shorts that would air before the films? And you know, how familiar were you with Disney at that time? I was very aware of Disney because we would go to the movies. Okay. 
and we would see the, the, the cartoons. And I didn't split apart a Disney cartoon from anything else until Snow White came along. Mm-hmm. And then I realized what beautiful work could be. And I just fell in love with it. And then I would watch the um, cartoons that they would put up at the show between the motion pictures. And, of course, I'd fall in love with more Disney, more Disney, more Disney. And uh, I think everybody did. Just everybody did. I can't think of anybody I knew that didn't. So when you got that call, you were bound and determined to go over there. So what was that like as you started, you know, talking with Disney? First of all, I had been in the business long enough to know that I wasn't going to go and just sit down and talk to somebody. I had to have something ready for them. Mm -hmm. So the night before, I got, you know those little 45 records with a great big hole in the middle? Mm -hmm. I I did a pantomime of a little boy fixing breakfast and juggling eggs and dropping the eggs (laughs) and then trying to run away. And I took my little player and I took my 45 record with me and my pictures and all the rest of it and went over and lo and behold, the man at the gate at Disney had my name on his clipboard. I was so excited. I was so excited. And I, I don't know whether you know it, you probably do, but Disney Studio uh, in Burbank was so tiny I mean, they had one sound stage. That was it. Um, and and so he, he told me, I checked it off, and he told me where I could park my car on the lot. <laughs> I mean, this was getting better and better. So uh, I, I got, and he told me where to find Mark Davis, hmm. the who did it all for Tinkerbell. What do you tell, I tell you about him. So anyway, I got out of the car and I immediately got lost because I was looking for a rehearsal hall. Mm. But no, the only thing in front of me was a building that looked like a bank building or something, all made out of brick and very pretty with, with well, this big lanky guy comes by and he says, you look lost. And I said, I am. I'm looking for Mark Davis. And I, he said, oh, he's in this building. He's up on the third floor. And I said, the third floor? You know, I must have looked terrified. And he said, I'll take you. Well, I had never had anything like that ever happen to me before at any other studio I was at. No one really helped you. No one ever really looked at you. If you were in trouble, uh, you you know, you were in trouble. This gentleman um, took me down the hall and showed me uh, the artwork on the walls. And then we went up in the elevator. And then he says, there's Mark's office. And I said, thank you so much. He says, happy to do it. And I'm told that this was one of the top animators. But I can't say for sure. Hmm. I'm I'm face blind, you know, so I don't recognize people. So anyway, I went in, and there was Mark Davis. And that's how that one all started. So did you audition, or or how did that work? Okay, I walked in, told him who I was. He he was waiting for me, and he was waiting for me. 
And he looked over at the player that I had, the little record. And I said, yes, I would show you a pantomime if you like. And so he said, yes, but wait a minute. I want you to do something first. And I said, okay. And he said, no, you stand over there. And then, it was then I looked up on the wall. And there were these large drawings of these this adorable, absolutely adorable little fairy. It was just, she was magnetic. Very simply drawn, nothing fancy. And I looked at her and I thought, she's about nine years old, I'll bet. And of course it was Tinkerbell, but I didn't know it at the moment. But he said, I want you to jump on, land on a mirror, on a, a, a dresser, land on a mirror, and look at yourself in the mirror and then turn around and see what you look like and then see the size of your hips and get very upset and stamp off. Can you do that? And Sean, I could do anything at 19. You know, <laughs> of course I could. <clears throat> so in a way, I backed up and I came over and I took a look and I thought, hmm, I'm going to play it as a nine-year-old who had never seen a mirror before. So when she looks in the mirror, she is not preening herself. She is just looking for the first time and saying, is that what I look like? Is that it? And he liked that. And they kept saying, well, what is the, the uh, player for? And I said, well, I want to do a pantomime for you. I said, fine, fine. So, uh, so help me. Mark Davis got down on his hands and knees to find a plug to plug in the player. <laughs> Again, you would never, ever, ever find that at another studio. Just never. So I did the, it was very funny, the little boy who's waking up and he gets some eggs out of the refrigerator to fix his breakfast and he, uh, he juggles them and it, it, he misses and they drop on the floor and he tries to scoop it up with his foot and he gets running away. And it was after that one that I think it was either then or the next week that Mark Davis called and said, would it be convenient for you to come to work next week? I've got to tell you, John and Sean, I have never, in all the time that I've been working since I was four, and I was up to about 1920, right around in there, I had never been asked whether it would be convenient to come to work. <laughs> So I said, well, I'll have to check the movie that I'm on. We're just about finished. And he said, fine, let us know. What time would you like to come? <laughs> now I knew he was kidding. Now I just knew he was kidding. And I very casually said, oh, 10 o'clock. He said, fine. I, I was dumbstruck. <laughs> anyway, uh, I knew that I had the job. And I knew that I could do a good job for them. And I was very excited to get started. And I worked at many, many other things because they called you up when they were ready for the next scene that they had done the um, work of, uh, uh, of setting where the props would be, where all the things would be. And then they would call me in and I would show up in my one-piece bathing suit with a cover-up. And I wasn't going to walk around just in a one-piece bathing suit. <laughs> and, Anyway, and then on their sound stage, 
And then he would show me, Mark Davis would show me what they had in mind for the scene. I would go out and try a couple things. Mark, just I hit the mark over there better, or whatever it was. And all the crew, there were about 12 in the crew, would light the lights. There was a 35 millimeter camera with a cameraman sitting on board. And Mark was sitting at his table, and Jerry Geronimi was pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so I did the scene, and he said, is that good for everybody? And they said, yes. He said, we're going to take it for one more for protection. And so I would do the scene again. And that's where they fed me through that keyhole. Mm -hmm. Two men had to feed me through the keyhole. It was, I couldn't get in or out by myself. Uh, and they were so sweet. They were just so nice. And I, I, I talked to um, several of the young people who had worked at Disney's, and they said, yes, at Disney's, everybody was very concerned that there should be no rough-and-tumble language or anything that we would not like to hear. Because they thought of me as a kid. Hmm. And I appreciated that, because I'd been on many sets where I didn't even know what half the words were, but I could figure it out. <laughs> so you were the model for Tinkerbell, but that wasn't your only role on that film. Can you tell us about your mermaid scene? One day they called me up and they said, how would you like to be one of the mermaids? And I said, bless your heart, I would love it. And you had a wonderful line in the film. What was that line? <laughs> well, they they tagged our feet together. We were in bathing suits, and we were up on what was supposed to be a rock. And they take our feet because we wouldn't move, uh, looking as if we had feet, but as if we had flippers. And we were mean. <laughs> we were mean. And I'm the redheaded mermaid, and I sit at the top, and I say, "Oh, Peter, we're so happy to see you." And then a little bit later. When he talks about blue with Wendy and so on, I said, we just wanted to drown her. Wendy, they were just having a little fun, weren't you, girls? We were only trying to drown her. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then uh, Connie Haynes uh, was the blonde, and and the great uh, June Foray, the great June oh, Foray oh, yes. was the blue. Okay. Oh. Uh, we were June was standing there, and we were looking at each other and said, "Why are we fighting for a scenes in front of the camera? We do voices. That's what we do. Look how easy that was. We went in there at one thirty. They gave us the scripts. We didn't have to learn anything. They, we checked out voices that they wanted us to do. We recorded, and we were out of there at three thirty, and we got paid for a full day." You can't beat and that. And Jude, of course, Jude, of course, went on to be one of the greats. Mm -hmm. And I've done over six hundred cartoons with about twenty, about forty-eight different voices, and about uh, oh, twenty-one different dialects. So that got me going on another direction. And uh, let's see, I guess that's about it. Because then I was going on ABC. At the same time I was doing this, I was going on. We used to call it the almost broadcasting company <laughs> because it was the baby broadcasting company. 
Mutual had dropped out some way, and we had NBC, CBS, and ABC. And uh, so I was hired, uh, cast in the role of um, Charlie Ruggles' daughter on The Ruggles Show, which played 172 episodes network, unheard of at that time. And uh, um, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. So uh, I sort of stayed with TV after that. Now, Margaret, I would be remiss, even though this is a Disney podcast, um, our family, one of our favorite shows is The Andy Griffith Show. And we watch it almost daily. So I need to hear a story about your Andy Griffith Show experiences. Okay. First of all, I want to know, want you to know, when I talk about the Andy Griffith Show, and I was on The Lone Ranger, and I was on The Three Stooges, and I was in all of it. I don't think anybody, of course, they, they shouldn't have to, but when you work on them, you realize how impossible it is actually to turn out a TV show a week. Mm-hmm. It's just remarkable. And when I was uh, uh, cast as Best Muggins in the Christmas Show, and my husband was a moonshiner, and old Ben Weaver put us in jail on Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. and so we had Christmas in the office. Well, it was it was a wonderful show. People just love it. And uh, it, But the thing that I wanted to mention about it was that one of the things that was so great for the, the whole company was that the whole show was done almost in the uh, sheriff's office. So they didn't have to move. They didn't have to go. So there was a chance just a chance that we that we could get it done and it would be they'll put the music to it I think on on Sunday and it went on the air on Tuesday I think mm. it was just it was it was just remarkable so when um, but I remember this particularly when I played the second role of Helen Scobie in Andy forecloses and again old Ben Weaver wants to kick us out of our house and Andy Andy is sure that he's going to fix it so that we don't have to. And they go back and forth. Well, I, there's a scene in there where I am ironing. And I'm listening to everything that's going on. And I realized that the camera was on me much too long. Of course, this was film. This was not a television camera. So this was film. And it's on me, and I keep ironing and keep listening and and so we finish the scene, and of course, old Ben Weaver gives up in the, in the show, and he lets us stay. As a matter of fact, he gives my husband a job, <laughs> and the good old, good old Andy Griffith show. Well, I asked my agent later on, why, why did they keep the camera on me so long while I was ironing? And she said, I will find out. So later on, she told me, she said, they were looking for a new girlfriend for Andy. Hmm. And they were saying, they thought you might do the part. And I said, and I didn't. He said, no, you were too pretty. <laughs> and I thought, well, I didn't get the part, but I'm too pretty. <laughs> so, and I thought those wonderful, wonderful people, that's the story that they came up with. And they made up at 20, 20 women who were on the show feel happy about the fact that they did not get the part of Andy's girlfriend. (laughs) That's the kind of show that it was and still is. 
Well, Margaret, it has been a pleasure talking with you today. Um, where can people find you online? I know you do a lot of events and you have a great website. Oh, yes. It's called TinkerbellTalks.com. And I have a book on there if they're interested. There are 80, uh, 80 stories, all short. The longest one is eight pages. Shortest one is one page. And there are 160 pictures all the way from my baby picture to Little Rascals to the, with the Three Stooges, with the Lone Ranger, with uh, all kinds of people. And uh, it's called Tinkerbell Talks. <laughs> the reason they called that because she didn't talk in the movie. So here she got a chance to talk mm -hmm. in her book. <laughs> and it's doing very well. Thank you. And so it's TinkerbellTalks.com. And this has been a delight. Thank you for I told you I could talk. <laughs> People don't believe me, but I told you I can talk. <laughs> and John, it's been delightful. And uh, the story about Hyperion, it's so part of Walt Disney, so part of everything that he did. And my memories of driving Hyperion Road, I guess it's right, Hyperion Avenue? Yes. I don't know. It was just called Hyperion. Everybody knew it. And it was just a joy for me to hear that you've named your uh, uh, interviews here Hyperion Hub. It just sort of brings tears to my eyes because it was so special to him. Anyway, God bless and have a wonderful, wonderful life, okay? Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. What a delight Margaret is, 94 years old, still doing all of the conventions and signing autographs and online presence, and she is just a joy. I didn't know before I started researching that she delivered that line in Peter Pan, and I had been watching that movie since I was little, and I remember I got to a point, I don't know how old I was, but I realized, that's a dark line, <laughs> <laughs> but it's fantastic. <laughs> they just love Peter Pan. And uh, they don't want anybody invading on their territory. And she delivers it so perfectly. So, yeah, a great interview. Love talking with Margaret. Just a, a national treasure, really. Absolutely. Follow us on social media. You can email us at podcast at com. You can send us a voice-recorded message there as well. And wherever you're listening to us, please rate and review so more people find the show. Until next week, have a great one, everybody. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub.